Choose life. Choose a sport. Choose a drop zone. Choose a start time. Choose a fucking big jump plane. Choose turbine engines, speed, unlimited altitude, and endless horizons. Choose height, no low turns, and travel insurance. Choose jump tickets. Choose tiny action cameras. Choose your mates. Choose a rig and matching helmet. Choose swoop shorts and a range of fucking fabrics. Choose 120 vertical speed and wondering who the fuck you are on a Sunday morning. Choose sitting on that couch, watching debriefs, spirit-saving slow-mos, smashing beers after last load. Choose standing on the podium at the end of it all. Choose a win you'll love every time. And the reasons? There are no reasons. Who needs reasons when you fly NZ Aerosports? Of course, I absolutely love the NZ Aerosports business model. I mean, come on. One glance at an Icarus fuck yeah sticker and you know it lines up perfectly with the fucking pilot mentality. But outside their wonderful use of colorful language and a great company vibe, there's a long list of reasons to say NZ Aerosports, fuck yeah. NZ Aerosports blows me away right out of the gate as a canopy manufacturer with a bold offer. They give you 10 jumps on your brand new nylon to decide if you want to keep it, swap it out, or even return it for a refund. I mean, seriously, how incredible is that? That's like getting halfway through a prom and deciding you prefer the slightly racier date that goes down faster. Seriously, they do that. If you're not madly in love with your new canopy after 10 jumps, they'll let you swap it out for another size or model or even get your money back. And the range of canopies they've got? Man, they've got a style canopy to fit every jumper and every situation with models you know and trust, like the Sapphire 3, the perfect choice for the beginner or intermediate canopy pilot. The Crossfire 3, when you're ready to kick it up that elliptical notch. The JFX 2, if you're looking to up your new swoop game. The Leia, as the workhorse and dirt water dirt beast. Or the Petra. The Petra cranks out crazy power and is nothing short of a record breaker. But hey, it's not always about speed either. Take the Kraken. Built as a low pack volume canopy, specifically with wingsuiting in mind, she gives you all the performance you're looking for with the reliability you need that'll have you itching for that next formation, rodeo, or puffy cloud. So, the equipment is top-of-the-line kick-ass stuff, as you already know, but how about the team? Well, the customer service gang is there to sort you out whenever you need them. Maddie and Beto are always there to help with Jen holding the reins. They're available for you at sales at nzaerosports.com, and they've got a kick-ass live chat tool on the website if you're wanting to hit someone up right away. These are the crew you're going to want to talk to to get those custom orders in. With the stock nylon, once you know what you want, they'll have that shit on a FedEx truck as soon as the credit card machine says approved and get you in the air in no time. For your custom orders, you'll be able to get a time frame for building and shipping when you design it, so get to it. And demos. They've got demos in the U.S. available from their partner Rock Sky Market. The whole U.S. demo fleet is there with Sapphire 3, Crossfire 3, Kraken, JFX2, and Leia canopies in a range of sizes. They also offer student and tandem demos in the U.S. Bottom line, every step of the way, NZ Aerosports is there to get you what you need, and I personally couldn't be happier to be teamed up with them here on Lunatic Fringe. Hell, they've even got a special offer for all you Lunatic listeners out there. Just head to pages.nzaerosports.com forward slash into the void. That's pages.nzaerosports.com forward slash into the void and follow the instructions to register a website account with them. You'll score a discount voucher with 20 bucks towards any purchase over $200. I mean, come on. You know you're going to shop with NZ Aerosports, so grab a little extra cash towards that buy and enjoy. The offer is good until the 31st of December and the voucher is good for three months, so go register now. And now, time to get started with Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, brought to you proudly by NZ Aerosports. Fuck yeah. 
coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! All right, back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void. Now, this is going to be a cool one because it's going to have a little bit of uh, a little bit of skydiving, a little bit of car stuff, a little bit of jungle shit, if you can believe that. But tell me, who the fuck are you, and what do you do? I am Matt fucking Jaskell. Yes, yes you. <laughs> which I've been called many times in my life, which is awesome. So yeah, Matt Jaskell uh, from Las Vegas, Nevada, for more than thirty years, and yeah, been a professional race car driver almost all my life. Um, and a lot of other stuff in between. Fucking hell. Well, so normally I ask people to, to tell me where they started out with extreme sports, but I think you probably just told me. You just drive crazy shit. Right, and that, but it was cool. It started out in motocross, age of five years old. Five years old, you were motocross. Yeah, man. My So my dad was a boat racer and um, before I was born. And there's a funny story I love to tell because because this is truly how it went down, man. Even when I was a you know pretty precocious kid, so so my dad was a boat racer, was pretty good. You know he was racing with people like uh, not everybody will know these names. I'm sure you will. He was racing against Vic Edelbrock and yeah. of Edelbrock Car. He was racing Jerry Herps of the Herps Hotel or Herps you know gas stations. Yeah. Uh, that was in a thing, and so he was doing offshore uh, outboard boat racing. He was pretty fast. Um, he was uh, with my mother. I wasn't born at the time, and he had a really bad crash. Uh, he sunk his boat. You know, the the saying in boat racing back then in the early '80s was either you died or you were going to die. It was kind of like early Formula One days. You know, Jeez. super dangerous sport. And um, so my dad was getting ready for a race, I guess, in his garage. And my mom, before I was born, c- came in and said, "Listen, it's it's either me or the boat. Which one's it going to be?" And um, and then I came a year later, and I was like, Dad, what the fuck were you thinking, man? <laughs> Terrible decision. <laughs> Terrible decision. You keep the boat every time. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Well, uh, what, what was the, what's the old joke? And I'm not going to say the whole thing, but I think it's something along the lines of if it floats, flies, or fucks. Yep. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> oh, wow. So we've always been. We've always been like not your super traditional family, right? Um, you know, d- honestly, didn't come from a lot of money, which you needed in racing. But my dad was just a, a super hard working man, on literally on his hands and knees. He was a hardwood floor installer who started to build his own hardwood flooring business. You know, mm. so we did well enough to have toys. You know, we did well enough that we were the family that was going out. To, we had a you know motorhome. We had the dirt bikes, the four wheelers. We were going out to the dunes. You know, mm. we, were, we were going out. We, we had a little winter cabin, you know, and we'd go snowmobiling in the wintertime, you know. So, you know, typical American family in the 90s, we're living outside our means, you know, sure. but, but we, you know, but we had some toys and we had some fun and, and, um, and yeah, so my brother, actually, my older, he was my half, my half brother, he was the uh, same mother, different fathers. And uh, so my, my father got my older brother into racing first and I got pissed. I was super jealous. I was like, man, I want to, I want to be racing too, you know? So only five going on six years old. My dad got me a couple of dirt bike, two of them. Uh, I had two little sixties, Kawasaki sixties, mm. and I was off to the races. And, um, and, and in a short amount of time until I was about 10, man, I was actually racing against, you know, I was at the track at the same time doing like the world mini, which was like the biggest motocross race in America every year. And it was held in Vegas. It was held wow. here in Las Vegas. And I was on the track with guys like um, Ricky Carmichael, Bubba Stewart, uh, Travis Pastrana, you know. So, so I, uh, Travis Pastrana and Ricky Carmichael, they were racing like 80 expert. I was in 60s when I was first doing that, but I was on the track at the same time with Bubba Stewart once or twice, like hmm. one or two years. It, it, these guys were way faster than I was, you know. Like I would watch these guys, and I'm like, man, I'm not. That's not me, man. I, I would watch these kids, 11, 12, 13 years old, 
doing 60 foot triples. Sure. You know, and maybe I was too mindful as a child, but I'd look at my dad and be like, I'm not fucking doing that, dude. Like I, <laughs> I'm pretty fat. I'm not, I'm not hitting a triple man. Right. <laughs> like, right. And I watched some bad shit. You know, I was traumatized. Only 10 years old, dude. I watched my cousin compound fracture his leg coming up short on a jump. Yeah, man. Like, Damn. I mean, so I got, I got scarred fast, but there was a go-kart track that was right next door. And so only at 10, 11 years old, I got injured pretty bad, got a bad head injury. My, my mother got very upset. And my mom was like, listen, I, I, you know, I know he's talented. I, I want to let him keep racing, but I don't want him doing motocross. Mm. And uh, and I shifted to four wheels and the rest, you know, we'll talk about it. But the rest is kind of history, obviously, you know. Well, and the, I mean, I've watched a couple of things on the kart racing and stuff, man, especially for the kids. It is fucking intense. I mean, it's it's the fucking the grooming and the stage for heading your way up to the big time, whether it's NASCAR or Formula One or all that. They're starting out on these little carts that scare grown adults. So you were driving shit as a kid that's faster than some of the cars I've owned. Yeah, man, dude. It, it almost and honestly, man, it's giving me. It's making the hair on my on my arm stand up because it, it makes me emotional sure. even hearing you talk. About it. My whole life was a struggle, dude. It was a struggle of telling people what i was dealing with what it was how intense it was you know people are like oh you race go-karts that's gay you know like right. uh, yeah sure did you know I, that nobody understood what i was doing uh nobody understood you know how fast it was dangerous you know i mean ki kids my age were dying you know sure. at some races I, I kid died in daytona at this big daytona cart week you know and um i mean we're, we're racing carts i'm i'm 10 11 12 i'm 14 years old i'm moving into shifter carts at the age of 14 i'm racing carts that are 80 miles an hour man i'm on track with 30 other kids um <clears throat> in 1998 i got to race my first world championship which was held in the united states in charlotte north carolina at the charlotte motor speedway there's a go-kart track Guess who was there, dude? Fucking uh, Nico Rosberg, Lewis Hamilton, who just won his seventh world Formula World Championship, uh, Jensen Button, uh, Fernando Alonso. These were all the guys I was racing against Nico Rosberg and, and Lewis Hamilton. But I mean, it was all the greatest Formula One drivers today. Those were the guys I was racing with. Sure. And it was very cutthroat. It was very intense. Um, you know, yeah, people would never, you know, people would never truly understand what that was like. You know, I mean, well, it was very... That's the, the thing, right? As I mean, you you just assume that, uh, especially somebody like Hamilton, you don't think this kid, this guy's been racing since he was a little kid. But that's kind of yeah. what it takes. I mean, if you're not doing that from a very young age, you're probably not going to get there. And it's, I, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, it's families like yours that are literally spending every dime to keep you on the track are the bread and butter of that whole industry, and so few actually make it. Dude, my parents were spending. I mean, it was. Bro, it was part of what was almost splitting my parents up, you know, <laughs> was the financial ruin, um, the amount of money we were spending. And then it was getting to the point, too, there, there's, you know, it's, it's a long story, but, you know, 10 years old. And then I go to four to, to make I'll try to make a long story long. <laughs> so to, from from 10 to 14, I'm, my, my parent, my dad's paying for it. By the time I'm 14, 15, I'm, I'm going professional. Right. So um I'm racing for a guy named Paul Tracy. Paul Tracy was a really famous IndyCar driver. Mm. And, you know, he was uh, right back in the good days of it. He was a Formula One test driver. He <clears throat> he was racing for Roger Penske. He was racing for uh, Team Cool Cigarettes, you know, back when the money was big in the late 90s, early 2000s. 
he started his own go-kart team and he lived in Las Vegas, like a lot of the uh, professional race car drivers, Jimmy Vassar and all these guys, because it was a, a tax thing more than anything, too. It was a cool place to live. They liked they all partied. They all made they, these guys were making seven, eight, ten million dollars a year racing sure. cars. You know, so a lot of the big names in, in, in IndyCar stuff lived in Vegas. We had a world ca- uh, class go-kart track that I was working at. I was I was you know not even I'm 14 years old. I'm pulling weeds. I'm working at the cart track every now and then, um, which leads into another story. But anyway, so when I'm I'm about 15 years old, Paul Tracy signs me to his professional go kart team, and that and and it, again, it would be like it would be like uh, if you're trying to play basketball, man. It would be like look, I'm just trying to pick a, the biggest name. It would be like LeBron coming to you and say, Hey, I'm starting a junior basketball team. I want you on it. Mm. That was exactly what it was. It was. It was nerve wracking. It was insane. You know, it elevated my name in the racing world because it was like, oh, you know, it was always in the biggest publications like Racer Magazine, Motorsports.com at the time. It was, oh, Paul Tracy, the you know pro- most prominent name in IndyCar. He's starting his own go-kart team to give back to the, you know, the community of racing. And, and so I raced for him. And then um, my dad didn't have the money anymore. So, so he carried me for about five years where kart racing can cost 30 plus thousand dollars a year to race at a you know, national level of karting. And so when I was a teen, I'm pulling into my teens and my dad goes, we don't have the money that it's going to take for you to continue on. So you better, you better start making it, you know? And, and that's what I mean by pressure. You know, here you are, you're not even 16 years old and you're having the talk like, oh, if you want this to be your career kid, you better fucking make it work, sure. you know? Well, so, so it sounds to me like up until 15, your mom was like, I, I wish you'd have kept the fucking boat. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> 100% she was. <laughs> <clears throat> she, you know, dude, it's a funny, my mother and I've had some pretty deep talks about it now and stuff. And, and, you know, and I think it wasn't the money it, that definitely upset her, but I thought, I also think she didn't want me to get hurt. And I don't mean physically. I think she, she saw the potential of disappointment of it not working out and was like, I don't want my kid. I don't want my baby to get hurt. You know, sure. like, I don't want it to all fall apart. You know, well, and, I'll tell you what though. I almost have to side with her on this. I mean, you watch the, the drama of F1 today and Hamilton with his seventh win. And it almost seems like predestined who's coming in for second and third. And so it's, it's kind of, you are setting yourself up for heartbreak. And, you know, I watched that popular uh, show on F1. It's fucking amazing to watch watch everything that's going on but it it really does seem like oh yeah you're just gonna you're gonna it's gonna be a bad breakup <laughs> every time you know dude I, you know man even talking to you right now fuck dude i feel you know like i swear to god even right now i'm having a moment of like man you know i can't believe i put my mom through that shit you know like holy <laughs> we've all like, done man. it though man <laughs> yeah right like um yeah dude so yeah, so I was able to, you know, I'm signed by Paul Tracy. I'm racing carts professionally. I'm, you know, essentially getting paid, you know, to go race carts. And then I won a scholarship to go into a car. Um, and uh, the scholarship was put on by Skip Barber, which is still around today. Skip Barber was was at the time, and and it's still around today. It was one of the the biggest uh, racing schools in the country in mm. America. So, like, if you wanted to go to a racing school, you you would you went to Skip Barber. It was mm. at Laguna Seca. They had some different locations, but they also had the pro series. So there was the school for like just you know Joe Blow everyday guys, and then there was the racing series to develop drivers. And they had a scholarship, and it was mm. like a karting scholarship program to race Skip Barber which was a junior Formula One car. You know, you're talking like two liter, you know, very, you know, like cheap, you know, sm- looks like a Formula One car, but it's, it's a junior Formula car, uh, pretty slow, you know, low horsepower, 200 horsepower. 
and to race that championship, if you didn't crash, if you didn't have crash damage, was fifty thousand dollars. It was fifty k, bro, and that's not fucking including travel expenses and maybe if you want to do extra testing. So like, I'm racing against guys that have hundreds of thousands of dollars in budget, and they're going practicing and testing, and I'm I'm racing on my little scholarship. I can't fucking crash the car because we don't have the money for the crash damage. You know, if you crash one of these cars. There was like an insurance policy, but the du- the deductible was five k. So if you crashed a car, you're still paying five grand to fix it. You know, yeah. dude, it was it was intense times, and you drove. You know, like it, unfortunately, a guy like me, man, you drove scared a lot of times. You know, um, and to give you a to give you an example of like the intensity and the fear and what people don't realize, like so you're trying to make it. Okay, a famous IndyCar driver. I was with him when he won his first IndyCar race in Las Vegas in 1998 as his guest. He won here in Las Vegas. His name's Sam Schmidt, uh, famous name in, in, in motorsport. Okay, he owns. He actually is part owner with the McLaren IndyCar team. The you know with Zach Brown, the yeah. owner of McLaren One. They teamed up, um, and it's who um, it's who Fernando Alonso tried to uh, race the Indy 500 with this year. So so that's Sam Schmidt. Sam has had one of the most successful Indy Lights teams, which is the junior IndyCar series right below IndyCar that you have to race to get into form- into IndyCar in America. Uh, IndyCar, for those that don't know, is the American Formula One, you know, same cars. Sometimes F1 drivers come over to compete. Um, so Sam Schmidt, he's uh, working his way to make a name for himself in IndyCar. 1998, he wins. Uh, I met him at the go-kart track. I went out there as his guest because I'm an up-and-coming young driver. Um, and then, uh, fi- I'm 15 years old in 2000, in the year 2000, he has a terrible crash. Mm. Um, and he becomes paralyzed from the neck down. Oh man. Yeah. He, he has a bad crash in testing, um, and, and backs it into the wall at 200 miles an hour and, uh, and becomes paralyzed from the neck down about a year later, 2001, uh, Sam Schmidt from his wheelchair, uh, you know, he, he creates uh, an, an indie lights team, you know, he becomes a team owner. Um, you, you know, you know, survives his injuries and quadriplegic and j- like Christopher Reeves type thing, same chair and everything. They were actually very close friends oh, wow. um, uh, after his injury and stuff like that. And so anyways, uh, Sam uh, puts me in my very first Indy Lights test. I'm only eight. I'm only 16 years old. <laughs> Fucking going on. Not, yeah. Not, I'm, and, and it was at the uh, the Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Hmm. And to give you an idea of what an Indy Lights car does, the Indy Lights car is about 180 miles an hour where the Indy car was 210. So it's not, it's not much different. You know, the Indy Lights car is, it, you wouldn't know the difference looking at it. It looks the same. It's just a little less, less horsepower, a little bit smaller car, a little bit less expensive. Um, still a half million dollar car almost, you know? And and so, so yeah, dude. So Sam gives me my very first test at the Las Vegas Motor Speedway. And my average speed was like 186 miles an hour, you know, something like that. And, uh, and yeah, dude, I mean, Matt, and, and I'll never forget this, dude. This is a, like, you know, one of those stories that sticks with me, I'll never forget. And, and I'll always remember this, but um, I'm in the car and it's very, it's, it's very ominous. It's almost like out of a movie, you know, you're getting all strapped in and I'm fucking 16 years old, dude. I call my dad to be like, okay, man, it's happening. Sam put, Sam's put me in the car. Uh, I'm getting ready to go. And so I'm getting all strapped in. I'm fucking terrified. Um, I've never gone this, this would be my highest speed ever. You know, I've, I've, I've all, all the only experience I have is go-kart and a little bit of open wheel racing and skip barber, which is nothing like this fucking car. And I'm getting all, and this is an oval. I've only done, you know, mostly road course racing, no oval stuff. So I get all strapped in and, and, and Sam wheels up to the front of the car and his handler puts the radio to, to Sam's mouth so he can talk. And Sam looks at me and he goes, make sure you warm up those tires real good. 
That's all. And when you so the, and I should have said this first. The re, and I just just fucking say, just so the reason Sam got injured and almost died, he the the way that the way you know the story's told, he was getting up to speed. And he got up to speed a little bit too quickly before the tire pressure and the tire temps could come up. When tire pressure, tire temps come up, the tire grows, and, and then you have a, enough room from the car because the car's so close to the ground. So the story goes, Sam got up to speed a little too quick. The car bottomed out. He lost control of the car, backed it into the wall. Oof. So I know that. you know, you know. know. So, yeah, so he comes up to me and set. And so imagine fucking being 16 years old, and the guy who's paralyzed from the neck down tells you, hey, man, warm up those tires real good. And you're just Dude, like, holy at, shit. At 16, <laughs> I was still trying to uh, perfect the art of masturbation. You're driving a fucking car <laughs> that drives faster than the plane that I fly. Come on. <laughs> right. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, dude, surreal. You know, and it's stories like that that I try – that nobody will truly understand how that – how that molds you, how that, how that affects your life and how that, you know, put, you know, makes you the person you are, you know, sure. it's like there, there was all, and there's, there was many moments like that, to be honest. Oh, you know? I bet. Well, you know, it's kind of funny because, uh, I mean, I've got no experience like that, especially nothing in, in regard to cars and, and all that stuff, but there's still parallels in the lifestyle and the things that you put yourself through as a skydiver, which you know, as well, being an active jumper, um, uh, jumpers put themselves into positions of really high pressure where it's a matter of trying to, all right, I know what I have to do, but I am shitting my pants. But no matter how oh. bad I'm shitting my pants, I still have to do these things and I have a goal in mind. Um, so in that yeah. respect, there are parallels. Although going from doing that stuff at 16, you're stepping into skydiving must have seemed relaxing. And, you know, it was, but another parallel that I love, I try to explain to people, I fell in love with the interest of, of all the different things you need to know. I fell in love with the complexity of skydiving. It's so fucking hard to explain skydiving because it's so complex. It's so, it's so intricate. And also what you just mentioned too, and, and very similar, same parallel to racing, when you're skydiving, especially with other people, if you fuck up, you can hurt or kill other people as well, not just yourself. And that's the same racing. You fuck up on the racetrack, it's not just your life at stake. You know, well, you're responsible for, for other people out sure. there. Sure. Well, and I think there's actually, um, the more I think about it, there's quite a few parallels in the racing world as in the skydiving world because both of them are very small communities. And the top of those pyramids are extremely small. And every generation has that very, very small tip that are the guys that are the cutting edge and they're on the podium all the time and they're the best canopy swoopers or the best four-way or eight-way teams. And it's very similar, I think, to the racing world. The other parallel, of course, being who's the best financed when it comes to the big competitive edge of things. And, you know, you see teams right. like, you know, the the French national teams who are very well financed and, and very taken care of by sponsors and stuff tend to do pretty damn well because um, they get to get out there and work it all the time. And you represent the four-way that started in the small drop zone, you know, in the middle of nowhere and, and you're paying your own way. That was kind of the carding stuff for you. So you're trying to fight your way into a, a pretty elite club. What You know, the, the difference that I found that I kind of kind of fell in love with with skydiving was there isn't the cutthroat competition i agree like there, there isn't you know so so skydiving sure there, there people don't even understand that the outsiders of skydiving don't understand that there's a professional level of it with you know with competitions and stuff like that but it's it's not the same in in racing it is people will literally i mean quite literally 
murder murder you because there's only so many seats available sure. or there's sponsorship available right and the thing about racing which is unfortunately kind of fucking disgusting and it is the frustration that we all talk about in motorsports is um is that you can fake it believe it or not if you have a million dollars in motorsports you can go buy yourself a seat hmm. you can go you can go buy yourself a, a ride there, there's a whole fucking series on netflix called the gentleman driver hmm. talking about how the the rich guys pay their way in and even if you're not fast you can still be there competing sure. where skydiving's kind of cool because you can't fucking fake being like if you don't have if you have money you can go do a thousand hours in the wind tunnel you might have that advantage over somebody but you still have to develop the skill where there's people out there that can't drive a fucking fart through their pants but they're allowed to be out there on the racetrack sure. you know because they have the budget you know, and that's, sure. that's the very, very th- disappointing thing about racing i think the only uh, the only exception that i know of uh for that in racing is nicky louder because he bought his first seat didn't he um but he turned out to be amazing yeah. at setting up cars and and then turned out to be an incredible driver but then again exactly he still had the talent but yeah. he paid his way to get in there to show that he had the talent yeah you know? fair enough he was and there is all there's in there even those drivers are limited in racing like there's there's a few drivers that i raced against that you know made it to indycar and stuff like that that i'll say were talented i was better than them at the time you know at, at our age you know they, they weren't finishing in front of me but they were still fast solid drivers but they had the money to get there so once they're there now they can prove themselves and they have enough talent to sure. to parlay that into more and more events and things like that but man it's a the racing world was just you know it, again it was one of those things where when we got into it, you know, just, just that ignorance is bliss, you know, I mean, sure. just, we didn't, we were going to get into. And then it was when I got signed to Red Bull and now I am on my way. I'm a, I am a formula one development driver and I am one of few in the entire world. I mean, we're talking like less than like a dozen drivers being groomed to be a, a you know, at the, at that year, you know, it, in, in total, What's pretty amazing, Red Bull ended up, or motorsports.com recently, it was, um, you know, it was bittersweet. I read this article and it was talking about the, um, the, where, you know, the, basically the, the, the guys that never made it, but it was a very small list. Mm. You know, we're talking less than, talking less than a hundred human beings on the entire planet over the course of like five or six years that were groomed by formula one to potentially be formula one drivers. And I'm, I was one of them. Yeah. You know? And that's something I have to try to be proud of, you know, but it's still again, bittersweet because people won't realize how political it was and financial. And it didn't matter how talented you were at the time. It was, sure. A lot of it was political. Yeah, no doubt. But I mean, it, it's already pretty fucking obvious that you've got the, the um, personality and the mentality to be able to look back at, back at it and go, all right, this sucked and that sucked, but fuck, that was cool. <laughs> yeah, know, I got I got I, to do some amazing shit and meet incredible people and drive fast cars and do all this really fucking incredible shit. And I didn't make it. But, man, I was I was close. Yeah, you know, for sure, man. And, and sometimes close is fucking pretty. That's good enough, man. I mean, uh, I, I, I obviously it's very bittersweet and I don't know what it's like sitting in your seat. But still, man, fucking kudos to you. Thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah it was it was. Uh... You know, dude, it's I'm, it's something I'll always have a hard time with. You know, still, it's like it's not even me as much as you know. I always have that that feeling of like, man, so many people behind me. You know, so many people have believed in me, and that, and still the frustration of knowing 
I was good enough to be there. You know, sure. I was faster than all the other guys, but it it wasn't, it was mostly political. And even still today, man, still trying to make it in the sense of still going racing. I'm still racing. I, I still get to get in a car. I still get phone calls to go, you know, go drive a, a professional race car. Um, you know, this year, this year I was supposed to be, you know, making it is being paid to be behind the wheel of a race car, yeah. you know, and even this year, I had a, I had a paid ride to go race in this uh, Lamborghini sports car series that, that races here in America. And it all came falling apart due to COVID, you know, of course. And dude, I mean, literally like my, my fucking life is like a bad Alanis Morissette song at times. You know, it's like, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, man, for (laughs) sure. Then my truck was loaded up and already was in Alabama for the first race or for the first test of the year. Cause the first race was uh, April. The, the truck left, man. The truck left. The contracts were already signed. I was already getting paid for the contract. We were already test. So my driver, a gentleman driver, he, uh, a guy who's, you know, older gentleman who has a lot of money. Um, he was, pay- he was the am and I'm the pro we were racing in the pro am the pro am yeah. class. And, uh, I was, like I said, already got him licensed, was already training him. The truck was in Alabama at Birmingham Motorsports Park, and we fucking get shut down. And I literally, like, threw my phone and was like, I'm like a bad meme at this moment right now, you know? Like, finally gets first professional race car ride for the first time in eight years, and global pandemic takes it yeah. out. Like, listen, I know other people have been devastated, even worse, but just, I, but I can only speak to my side of, the, of my, you know, experience, and I'm like... Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've seen a bunch of the stuff that you've put up as well in, in uh, one of the events that you were at not that long ago that, uh, again, was very uh, COVID-friendly and nobody was there. And, and uh, you were talking uh, on a live stream about how bizarre it was to be at this event that's usually packed oh, with yeah. hundreds of – Yeah. You know, and at, at the 500, that's usually wall-to-wall people, and it's you. You yeah. and, and a couple other people running the cars and it's how bizarre, man. It's, it's, been... it was, and again, I'm, I'm, I get very proud and honored that I had purpose to be there. You know how historic that was. I was there as much as, you know, I've tried to race the Indy 500, uh, to, to give you an idea to go race the Indy 500. I have the ability to do it. The Indy car series two years ago gave me permission, which is a big deal. They don't get permission to everybody because of my background. They were like, all right, Matt, we will allow you to try to compete in the Indy 500, but I still have to put the money together, right? The sure. sponsorship. Race the Indy 500 for a guy like me is around 800 to a million dollars, 800K. Just to give you an idea of how much racing and how stupid it is. To go race the Indy 500, I can be there. I can go start the biggest sporting event in the world and, and, and you know put myself in the history books as long as I have a million dollars. But the <laughs> fucked up thing is, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you pay a million dollars and that only gets you to the starting line. But a million dollars does not get you around the track for the race, man. You got to have the support team. And if anything goes wrong, it's a lot more than a fucking million dollars. No, no. I mean, like, well, here's the deal. So believe it or not, Sam Schmidt who's still my very dear friend today, the guy paralyzed, right? So so I call Sam. Uh, it was after the whole jungle experience, which we're going to get into and stuff. And so I said, hey, man, I want to I want to race the Indy 500 because I, I, I never had my opportunity, you know? It, it, and, and again, it's a long story. I was racing Indy Lights in 2007. And then in, and I, was, I had a, a, lo- a ride lined up in the Indy 500. Glo- uh, the uh, economic collapse, 2008, took it away. <laughs> So, yeah, so, dude, I know, man. So I've had this, I've had this pretty unique story of like, yeah. I mean, I've been written, I've been written up in magazines. Because at least people, it's not just a bullshit story. I've been published in magazines where it's like where, where black cloud strikes again. Like if Jaskel had no bad luck, or if Jas, one of the stories was written, if Jaskel didn't have bad luck, he'd have no luck at <laughs> oh, all. Oh Jesus Christ! That was, 
I mean, that was my, that was a story. And, and, and again, dude, it wasn't just me. It happened to, you know, uh, you know, not, I wouldn't say many, but it happened to a pretty decent handful of drivers like myself, but, but just always, there was just always something that kind of struck it down, you know? And, right. and I, I would, I even, jo- I think I made up this analogy cause I'd never heard it. And when I first said it to somebody they're like, dude, that's dark and profound at the same time, I was like, I saw the fucking light at the end of the tunnel and it was a goddamn freight train. Yeah. <laughs> 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 right. Yep. Like every time I saw the light, it was a train. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Coming the wrong goddamn direction. <laughs> yeah, dude. So, so a couple of years ago, I was trying to put an Indy 500 deal, deal together with Sam Schmidt. Um, and the production company that had done the show that I was on, on, on the, on castaways in the jungle, they were going to like document it and stuff. But, but to put the ride together, it was going to cost me a million dollars. Cause I had to go do extra testing. You have to do what's called your rookie orientation with IndyCar, which costs like 50 to a hundred thousand dollars. And all of this is based on if you do not crash a car, you know, and, and if you do crash a car, it could be about a quarter million dollars extra budget, right. you know? So that's where the million, so, so I can go do the Indy 500 for probably three quarters of a million dollars. But no team is going to put me in a car unless I give them $250,000 crash damage deposit because there's a really good chance I'm going to crack an egg, sure. you know, learning how to go fast around, you know, the Indy 500, fucking 230 miles an hour. Yeah, man. You know, and I, I've raced Indy at about 200 in an Indy Lights car, but, you know, going an extra 30 miles an hour is different, is a lot different. So so we almost had a deal together. Um, but what, what people don't understand is some year, so only 33 cars are allowed to start the Indy 500, Okay. Uh, that's history. That's historic. It's the, the way the, the way the work. So 33 cars are allowed to start some years. They only have 33 cars, meaning no matter how slow I am or how fast I am, I'm going to get to start the race. But many years, there's fucking 37, 38, 40 cars trying to start the field to give you an idea of how difficult it is and how it comes. It doesn't matter how talented you are. You truly have to have a proper car and team. Like you just said, Fernando Alonso, for people who don't know, he's a multi-time Formula One world champion. He's won the 24-hour Le Mans. He's won at fucking Monaco. He is considered one of the greatest Formula One drivers alive. He didn't fucking qualify for the Indy 500 last year. And it's not because he's not a good enough driver. The car wasn't good. They didn't have the right setup. Things didn't work out. He did not make the field for the Indy 500. Like that goes to show you, you know, that's that's Indy, man. Like things can happen. So what's tough is I can go raise a million dollars in sponsorship. And if I choose to race in a year that more than 33 cars are trying to start, I might not fucking get to start the race. Yep. Yep. And guess what? We're going to get some budget back. We're going to get some of our, we're you know, potentially going to get hundreds of thousands of dollars back, but not, but we might spend $700,000 and I didn't get to start the Indy 500, yeah. dude. And it, it's so hard to raise that money and to go get the support. Even people that truly believe in me, it's like, oh, fuck, that's a big, well, and you know, that's, a big comm- that's the team McLaren and Mercedes and all that, that have got the deepest pockets and, and it's pretty tough. I mean, if you've got independent oh, teams. So yeah. yeah, Fernando was racing for McLaren, and they didn't start the race, and they left with their tail between their legs. Like, oh which shit, we're just, McLaren, which is and, and we didn't start the Indy Five Hundred. Which is insane. <laughs> now, um, it's insane. We're 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 gonna touch on a little bit of skydiving since this is uh, generally a skydiving podcast. <laughs> so oh. I want to know um, how 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 did you get started in jumping, and where did you start jumping? Okay, uh, so I got started in skydiving, and I'm sure the story will be very typical to a lot of people, right? Um, and I, listen, if I'm just going to be super transparent, but people take, you know, people always take, you know, people don't want to say this word. They take it the wrong way because it's different for everybody. I was fucking depressed, dude. Mm. You know, I was depressed. I was down. And, but not like to the, not to the level 
that you would think, you know, some people take that too, right? It's right. like depression for me was, I just wasn't fucking happy, dude. Sure. I just was not happy. I was just, I was sad. You know, it's like, I wasn't racing. I wasn't using my skill set that I developed and, and built my entire fucking life, you know? And, and here I was, I had a cool job and all, but dude, it's, I was working, uh, at dream racing, <laughs> which is like one of the premier racing experiences in the country, you know? And, and it's a, like a dri- kind of like a driving school or whatever. And it's here in Vegas and I was the chief instructor. Okay. So I'm the chief instructor out of this place called dream racing. But imagine, um, what I try to, you know, and, and from outsider, and it's not that I'm not grateful or I, you know, I don't realize that it's a cool job. I just try to explain it to people simply like this. Imagine you're a baseball player. You devoted your entire fucking life since the age of five years old and you're still young. You're fit. You still throw a hundred mile an hour fastball, but you're working at a fucking batting cage. Yeah. You know, it's not where you want to be, dude. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not what you be doing so here i am yeah i'm dude i'm driving race cars every day i'm giving drift rides i'm i'm the chief instructor i'm i'm at a racetrack every day but i'm miserable man this is not where i want to be um i mean i was dating the same girl for eight years you know and like the the relationship had just ended i turned 30 years old which again being any athlete at least for me getting older is not good. It's like one more year that your window of opportunity is closing that you might not have a, you know, might not be able to continue racing and, and getting a ride. And so I'm just fucking depressed. I'm like, I'm 30 years old, not where I want to be in life. Don't want to be sitting at a racetrack and, um, just got out of a relationship. I'm single for the first time in like more than 10 years. I've been dating, you know, in a relationship ever since I was, you know, like a young teenager. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> so something, somebody you'll know is kind of cool. So, and this is a, to me, a pretty cool story. So, um, the owner, he's not the owner, one of the owners, you know, like he's one of the owners, part of the family and stuff is a guy named Nick Sacco. And, and he, um, uh, Savage Sack is what he goes by is what, you know, he's, he's pretty famous in the skydive world to me, you know, at least, at least, uh, you know, I, I looked up to him or still do, you know, looked up to him as like a mentor cause he got me into the sport. And, um, so here's this fucking radical son of a bitch, you know, South, South curly haired, South African guy. And I taught him how to be a racing instructor. So he was, you know, part of dream racing. And when I met him, dream was like, Oh, you need to, you know, coach and train him how to be a proper racing instructor. So I, I, I mentor and train him as a racing instructor. And every now and then this guy, this guy, Nick, he's inviting me to go on adventures, you know, and, and, and these, and I'm not a skydiver, but he's inviting me to go fucking cruise in a helicopter, go to these crazy locations. And I, and I get to these locations and they're, they're wingsuit base jumping. And it's, it's weirdos like this guy, some weirdo named Scotty Bob. <laughs> so, you know, some, you know, I've never met this, some weirdo named Scotty Bob, a guy named Ian Mitchard, Matt Froelich, um, Matt Keeney, who's sadly gone now. And, and so, so these pretty rad dudes and I'm, and I'm watching him and my mind's fucking blowing up, you know, like, and this is 2013. And my mind's exploding. I'm watching these guys base jump wings and I'm like, I got to fucking get into this. So now 2014, I turned 30 years old. I'm single. And some of my instructors, these younger dudes are like, hey, man, we're going we're going uh, skydiving. You're cu- Nick set it up for us. Uh, you're coming, right? And I was terrified. Dude, I was actually scared to skydive. I mean, I was fucking I, Nick would always try to get me to go. And I was like, fuck, I don't know, man. I, I'll go some at some point. And here's my younger, like barely 20 year old racing instructors that I hired and I'm their manager. And, and they're like, hey, we're going skydiving. You're coming. Right. And I was like, fuck, I can't let these kids go. And right. I, I'm not going. Yeah, I'm coming. So I, I go do my tandem. I do it with this badass, you know, amazing guy named Jace Ramsey here in Vegas. He takes me for a tandem. I was, dude, I, I was fucking terrified, of course, like anybody doing their first tandem, most people at least, don't remember much of it. I did ground school that night because I knew it was what I wanted to get into, right? So 
so I do my first tandem. I do ground school that night and I solo the next morning. And within a few weeks I had my A license. That's fucking <laughs> epic, man. That's absolutely yeah. epic. Well, so which drop zone were you at? So it was Eddie Carroll's Vegas extreme. <laughs> yeah. in- I know the spot. <laughs> and it- Right. So, and, and, and if people that know Eddie Carroll, you know, that was a, a rough introduction into skydiving anyways, dude. There was days I'd walk in the door with all my gear and Eddie'd be like, you're not fucking jumping, mate. And just for whatever reason, because he's crazy. I was like, oh, okay, copy that. I'm, gonna, not jumping today. I'm gonna keep all my comments to myself, which is unusual <laughs> for me, but I'm, I'm not gonna say anything. I got started with Vegas Extreme, so I helped open Vegas Extreme. Um, Eddie okay. Carroll at the time, his partner was a guy by the name of Dale Hinton, who was a great friend of mine that I used to work with at Sky I'd have Las Vegas uh, back in the day. Okay. They started that together. And so all the first photographs, all the first rack cards, all the first fucking promos, all that shit, I made it. Every single one of them. Every one no of them. Shit. So Vegas. So ex- did you know- What's that? Yeah. You know, I was saying, we talk about how small the world is, dude, how, how we're all interconnected, man. That's so cool. I see the shit I didn't know, dude. That's oh, so yeah, awesome. man. Yeah. No, I actually lived in the same house with Eddie Carroll. Myself, uh, Eddie Carroll, uh, and another instructor who's in Australia now by the name of Derek Massey lived together. What? Had some bizarre shit happen in that house, I'll tell you. <laughs> I can't even imagine. Holy shit! Yeah, man. yeah. It was a little. It was a little weird because it was shortly after. Uh, uh, I think Eddie was either in the middle of or had gotten divorced, and and uh, Derek was a bouncer at a strip club, and I was still a stripper, <laughs> and working as a skydiver. So yeah, it was a weird time. Dude, that's. Dude, I always tell people how connected people are, right? Like how how we're we're all connected in the world, but then you get into the racing world, then you get into the skydiving world, and how fucking small the world is. And how badass that is to hear you're like, oh, yeah, dude. I mean, that's where I started my skydiving career, and you were a part of the start of that journey. Dude, oh, yeah, man. Oh, yeah, man. Well, you know, it's kind of funny because, uh, you know, the, there's the old six degrees of separation uh, for all yeah. the people in the world. But skydiving, it's one degree of separation. That's it. Yep, it's race. one. I might not I know that. you, but I know a dozen people that know you. Or vice versa. Yep. So it's, but it's a wonderful thing too. Um, or it can be bad, you know, good and bad reputations spread around really fucking quickly. So yeah. it's funny because every time certain names get brought up, like Eddie Carroll or or um, other people, we won't even go into. You can see the look in people's faces just kind of goes, "All right, should I should I say it, or am I just going to keep my mouth shut?" <laughs> uh, listen, I will say that I was I was lucky that I you know Eddie taught me a lot. You know, he was, he, but you know, we, we all know he's, you know, he's a bit of a crazy man, yeah. but, um, but I, but, but at the same time, I don't regret any moment of it, you know, as far as like, it was great. It was cool. You know, no, like man. I got, that's, got that's a wild the, introduction. That's the cool thing about the, uh, the skydiving uh, industry and the world in general. I don't regret any of it, you know, good, bad, or otherwise yeah. they're all learning experiences and they get you where you're going in the sport. And you can, uh, you can learn just as much from a bad influence as, in skydiving as you can from a good one, as long as the bad one doesn't get you fucking killed. <laughs> So it's it, it, it was uh, it was a great place to work. I mean, I I worked for every drop zone that was in Las Vegas. I worked for uh, Scott of Las Vegas. I worked for what was in Gene the first drop zone there, which was Outlaw Skydiving, and then that turned into uh, it turned into what you know as Eddie Carroll's place. So been there, Vegas Extreme. Yeah, yeah. it was and good. Now, stuff. now it's Go Jump. Go, everybody knows. Yes. No, dude. Honestly, I, I had bad. You know, as much as like it wasn't the 
the most fun, friendly, fun jumper drop zone with Eddie, obviously, because it was more of a tandem place. Yeah. It was still so, dude, I had some of the most fun times learning how to skydive with Eddie and, and at Vegas Extreme. So, yeah, it was rad, you know. And obviously, like Jace Ramsey, that just to me is one of the coolest human beings ever. He was the guy that taught me how to skydive. And and then, like I said, it was Nick mentored me into skydiving. And, um, and then I got to travel from there. But, you know, to, to wrap that up, like skydiving... It, it, not to sound cliche, it is a little bit, right? But it's like skydiving, I'm an A-type personality athlete, right? You know, like, I mean, I was, I'm, I do triathlons, racing, I, you know, I've devoted my life to being a fit, you know, you know, mindful athlete. Skydiving was my drug. And as cliche as that sounds, some guys go and drink, they go party, they do drugs, you know, whatever. I, that's, that wasn't me. I wasn't happy, but I'm not, that's not what I'm going to go do. So skydiving was, that was my drug. It was my escape. You know, it, it was my distraction, whatever you want to call it. But I didn't realize how fucking, you know, how spiritual it was going to end up being. It, it made me a more spiritual human being when, when I wasn't, you know, and, 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 and again, and everybody who does, does skydiving can can understand this. It was it wasn't the skydives. It was the intricacy. It was everything after the skydive. It was the travel. It was the people. It was it was just something so unique that sure. is, you know that, that we all know in the sport you can't explain to anybody. Sure, that doesn't do well, it. it's both basic and intricate because it's very intricate. If you try to break down physically what you need to do from start to finish to make a successful skydive, it's extremely difficult to explain. If you want to right. break it down to its most basic terms, it's very easy jump out of the plane at the right time you pull this handle if something goes wrong you pull these two handles um right. so there's all that but for me and something that you learned at a dramatically younger age than myself and most skydivers do is the fear factor and how to yeah. to cope with and harness that um uh, you know i i vis still vividly remember and you're too young to remember when the whole no fear t-shirts and shit were super popular yeah, I was kind of yeah, yeah. When at the head of yeah, dude, they got into racing. And yeah, I had like no fear. Yeah, so all yeah. that shit, and then and but you, I I thought that was cool when it first started, and then I became a skydiver and went, oh, those guys are fucking idiots. The f- they're adrenaline. The- yeah, the fear is the only yeah. thing that's keeping me alive. I want that fear. I don't want the no f- no fear. Fuck no, thank you. I'm I'm happy. Please scare me because that that fear is keeping me sharp. But you learn that yeah. behind the wheel. So I'd imagine that transition into uh, dealing with your fear over skydiving was probably a lot easier for you than for a lot of people. Yeah, you know what, man? It's cool that you say that because my whole life I used to get pissed, man. I'd get so irritated when people think. They know, you know, you know, starting out in motocross ever since I was a young teenager, I'd be like, I race cars. I race. Oh, you're an adrenaline junkie, huh? And I'd actually be like, no, I'm not actually Mm. like, man, when I race motocross, I was one of the I was one of those riders that was fucking puking before the start of the race. Dude, my stomach's upside down. I'm on the gate terrified, dude. Like, you know, I don't want to get hurt. I don't want to, you know, I would get scared about not finishing well, not don't, not doing good, you know, not, you know, getting, get my dad pissed off, beat me at the, after the racing. He never beat me, but he'd like yell and, you know, yell and scream at me if I fucking sucked. Right. Right. And, uh, dude, all the emotions, all the fear, dude, like in, and then when I got into go-kart racing, I wasn't as scared because motocross was way fucking scarier, but dude, you, the fear was there, man, being in a race car, whether, whether you were afraid of crashing, so it was going to cost money, whether you're afraid of getting hurt, the, the fear was so real. So I told people all the time, I'm like, no, man, I, it's, and I didn't even know how to explain it at the time. I was like, I'm searching and looking for something different. It's not adrenaline. Yeah. It's not absolutely not at all. You know, that's actually the most frustrating part. Uh, but I try to explain to people, people think you're fearless. They think you're brave. And it's like, no, I was just pushed past fear. As you just mentioned it, I was like, I've pushed, I've been pushed 
or I've pushed past fear and I see what's on the other side of that and it's all work and it's fucking it's amazing. It's another world. You still have to work through that fear, but if you can, it's rewarding. And that's how I explained it to people. And it's cool because people kind of tilt their head back like, oh wow, okay. I didn't it, realize yeah. You know? And if you're able to explain to people like that, the, the fear actually pushes you to a level of clarity uh, that most people don't get. And it's that clarity right. to know, I have to do these things. I have to deal with these things. And um, just uh, as, as same with you know racing a car as it is with skydiving, not doing these things correctly ultimately can lead to some really fucking bad consequences. Uh, and that gives you that, that almost slowing down of time and that, that amazing clarity that can be very zen you know i don't get yeah. adrenaline for me is a bad thing i get adrenaline and i'm amped up and i'm i'm not handling things well if i've got that then something is wrong you know i don't right. i don't i don't want to feel that in skydiving fear and adrenaline yeah. are two very different things it's funny because the, the adrenaline for me and, and everybody like explaining to people and you i'm sure you understand this you get it the adrenaline truly comes when you've accomplished when i land on the ground oh, yeah. and everybody safe because you know, i'm scared during the jump that's when you're like fuck yeah, oh, you know, yeah because it all because it all went well now and that's cool you're on the ground everything's good but yeah that's that's when i get the the uh, the adrenaline is is after everything's and then i guess you know what to a certain extent you know to be completely honest i do you know that does drive me to continue is not the adrenaline it's the it's the again the intricacy of accomplishing something sure. you know to me it's like crossing the finish line. You know, it's like even if I didn't win, to finish is such a big deal a lot of times, right? So, so when you when you progress, you know, that's when I get excited. That's the that's the adrenaline. You know? Sure. No, absolutely. Well, and it's uh, um, I've always had a, a, a an affinity for being able to be on the ground, having dealt with fear in the proper way and go, I did that. That's your pat on the back. You know what I mean? And I'm sure yeah. you're the same. You're in a situation where you're like, all right, I'm really going to freak out about this when it's over. <laughs> but that's there the difference, right? It's, it, it, you know, if you haven't gotten to that point, you're going to freak out when it's happening and then it all goes really wrong. But you get to a point uh, where most skydivers are where you're like, all right, I know I'm going to shit my pants about this later, but right now I've got shit to do. <laughs> yeah. Got to fight. Yeah, I love now, that. Yeah, got to. Now, I, I actually want to transition into um, how you ended <clears throat> up looking like Tom Hanks after the fourth year in Castaway. Um, <laughs> you thought I looked as that good, huh? I don't know. <laughs> you, well, your beard wasn't as long, but you were definitely as thin. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> so uh, start from scratch, man. You ended up in in basically in Papua New Guinea, um, looking like a fucking refugee. Yeah, man. So, whew. okay. So most emotional, most experience in my life. Yeah. And it was honestly something I did not ask to do. And people don't realize that. So again, do this a long story and I'll try to, I'll try to get through it as quickly as possible. So it's realistic. So people, all the, all these skydivers listening aren't like, what the fuck? We don't want to hear this guy talk anymore. <laughs> um, but it is, a, it is a pretty wild story. And, and, uh, so I get a, I get an email or a, a Facebook message and it's, of course, it all boils down to, mo to fucking motorsports, right? My whole life. So this guy writes me, who's known me since I was 10 years old, and he's, I, he's a friend, but also at the same time, before all this, I, you know, it wasn't a really close friend. He was like, worked in the go-kart industry, and he was just that guy that's like known me my whole life, right? I would say 
he was like a fan of mine, you know, essentially like he just, you know, he followed my career, followed me on social media from the age of 10 years old. And he was that guy that I would see once a year at like the big race, you know, like, like the Indy 500 of go-kart racing. I'd see him at the big race every year. Hey Matt, how you doing? Oh, Hey Dave, good to see you, buddy. Yeah. Take care. You know, that was it. Sure. This guy messaged me. So you got to understand, I'm not really close with him. So when I see his message, I'm kind of like, what the fuck, what the fuck does this guy want? You know? So he, he messages me and goes, Hey Matt, something came across my desk and I want to talk to you about it. Now, something I will be honest and admit is that I'm a, unfortunately, you know, I try to balance it, but I'm a bit cynical, you know, a bit burnt out. You know, it's like, I've been fucking promised. So if you even, if you even knew half of the shit, you know, that people have come to me with, like, I got a sponsor for you. I got a million dollars for you. I got a race car ride for you. You know, I've heard it all. Right. So, so you get very jaded, of course, you know, you just kind of like, so you hear things all the time. You're just kind of like, well, whatever, dude, I don't have time for this, you know, but you still try to be professional and polite to everybody. You know, that's being a professional is what I've done my whole life. So, so I get this message, but honestly, man, it wasn't a, in a, it was in a dark time in my life. Um, so to, again, it's, it's complicated, but it was during a time that my father had, uh, shortly after I became a skydiver, 2015, my dad has a heart attack. Okay. Has a heart attack, uh, open heart surgery, almost dies. And, um, most, most important human being in my life, you know, mm. and, uh, I leave my job at dream racing, um, leave my career and I take over the failing family business, you know, that, you know, that, that basically, keeps the roofs over some of our heads, you know, like I'm paying my own bills. I'm working, I'm traveling, I'm working as a racing instructor. I'm actually at the time living in a house. People would never understand, believe this. I'm living in a house that's still in foreclosure at the time, just got it out recently, a couple of years ago. But from 2009, after the economic collapse, the house was in foreclosure. Hmm. Still, it was, it was in foreclosure for nine years and I, I was battling to keep it. And, um, so I'm, and so my dad, he's living across town. My parents have split by this time with some else I didn't mention, you know, they, they split up around 2010, basically 2000. They're, they're still married, but my mom's living in Utah. My dad and I are here in Las Vegas. You know, the marriage isn't going well. Um, during that time, like 2012, 2013, my mom starts to suffer mental illness mm. and, and kind of distance herself from the family. Really sad, dude. Really, really hard, painful times, you know. But I'm very, very honest and transparent about it because my story is part of my life, you know. Sure. So my mom suffered mental illness, and I'm basically completely out of touch with my uh, with my mom. 2005, my my parents aren't talking. I'm not even speaking to my mother, which is a, a difficult thing. My my dad has the heart attack. I take over the family business. 2016, my dad's recovering from. A heart attack. I'm running the family business. I'm trying to pay the bills, trying to not lose the house. Um, my mom contacts me and goes, Hey, um, I know some, I haven't talked to my mother in almost three years, man. And she calls me and goes, and she calls me crying and goes, Matt, something's wrong with me and I need help. And I go, and dude, I'm bro. I break down. I'm like, mom, I've been waiting for this call for a couple years. I'll fucking come get you right now. She's living an hour. Just, she's living by mesquite. Mm. She's living with my aunt and uncle. So I go pick her up, move her into my home, and I start the long journey of trying to get her diagnosed. And in Las Vegas, fucking worst mental health care of anywhere in the country. It's mm -hmm. difficult, man. I mean, so she's in and out of mental hospitals. And so now we go from 2016 to 2017. I'm taking care of my, my mother, my father, my bit, the, the family business, and trying to keep my own sanity. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm a skydiver. 
So every now and then I'd save up a little bit of money and I'd go on these skydiving adventures, you know, and it, it was even frustrating then because fucking people who don't know any better, they're like, oh, oh, is Jasko like a trust fund baby or something? Because I'd go on these cool trips right. and it was because of the people I knew. I, you know, people didn't realize that I had fucking connections that I had made for 20 years that were interconnecting with skydiving. I was going to Panama with fucking racing friends that I had met almost 20 years ago and, <laughs> and it was, there was a skydive event there and, and so like I'm just trying to get out of town for a week at a time because people don't realize what I'm doing at home. Sure. I'm taking care of a mentally ill mother. I'm taking care of my father who just recovered from a heart attack. Live, I don't know, you know what's going to happen with him. You know, could lose the business, could lose the house. You know, fucking, it wasn't the best of times, man. Let me just say that. But I would I would compartmentalize things and I'd go off and do my little skydive trip to, you know, to, to escape everything and then come back to the grind uh, of working, you know, 20 hour days and, and trying to keep business going and shit like that. So, so I, th that story to tell all that backstory is important because, because I get a text message saying, Hey Matt, um, there's this TV show that my friend is working on and, and they want to talk to you about it. And I suggested your name. And now, now knowing everything, you know, I literally blow them off. I'm like, I don't fucking have time for this shit. You know, like I, I'm, I'm dealing with way too much. And, uh, so, so one of those things where I didn't want to be an asshole, dude, I'm, I'm too nice to everybody at times, you know, and I just go, yeah, sure, Dave, uh, let's get on the phone or, you know, whatever. I'll just listen to what he has to say, you know? And he tells me, he goes, Hey Matt, will you please talk to this producer? She's a great friend of mine. And, and, and they, they want to talk to you. And it's, it's legit. And it'll, it'll be like a real big network TV show thing and whatever. So I get on the phone with this producer, she pitches the show to me and then she ends it with, but it's going to be a great, amazing life changing thing. We're going to document your life. It's going to be a lot. It's going to be a chance for you to tell your life story. It sounds like you have a very interesting one, uh, but there's always a big, but <laughs> the big, but is it's going to, it's going to involve surviving in a deserted jungle Island for up to two months without food or shelter. And I'm like, yeah, fuck you got the wrong guy. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I was like, lady, I, like, you know, if I'm stressed out, I might go get a pedicure or something, but like, you got the wrong dude, you know, like I'm a race car driver from Vegas. So I'm not living in a jungle. What are you talking about? So <laughs> no desire to do that. So I'm like, yeah, sorry lady. But again, she, they actually pursued me. They, they pursued me. They, they said, listen, we think you'd be great for this. Would you please consider it? Um, you know, it, it's going to be something pretty unique. And, uh, and I, and I went and it, dude, of course they knew how to play my ego though, too. Sure. Th this lady was like, Oh, you're, you're just on a list. We haven't chosen you yet. And I was like, all right, bitch, let's show me this list. What do you right. got? You know, like, I'm like, now the competition part of it, I'm like, oh, you know, now I just want to be chosen even so I can have the, the choice to pull out if I want. But so she, she, she plays me a little bit. I go down the dark rabbit hole and I go to my parents and, and I know they're going to, I mean, I'm running the family business. I'm running all the day-to-day -day operations. I'm taking care of my mother. And I go to my parents to at least tell them like, hey, I got asked to be on this TV show. It's going to be on a major network. You know, it could be kind of cool. It could help my racing career even. Maybe I can parlay it into something, tell my story a little bit. And, but, but it does involve me going into a jungle, completely cut off from the world. Across the world, you guys wouldn't be able to speak to me. I'd literally be completely off the grid. I wouldn't be able to pay it, you know, take care of anything. You guys would have to keep the wheels turning on your own, you know. And I was actually kind of hoping, being the chicken shit a little bit inside of me, I was kind of like, I don't really want to do this, but so I'll leave it in my parents' hands, right? And my dad, very emotional, was like, oh, man, maybe you need to do this, you know? And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, dude, well, like, uh, and so I go to my mother, who's for sure going to say no, you know, and then I'll be like, I just can't do it. And I sit down with my mother. She's in tears a little bit. She was like, she's like, I don't know, Matt. 
I don't know why, but I feel like this is something that you sh- you need to do. And I don't want us to be the reason that, and I, and I literally just like my stomach saying, I was like, Oh fuck, maybe I'm going into a jungle. Actually, <laughs> maybe I'm actually going to do this, you know, dude, your mom bought and, the um, boat. Yeah, dude. And what was something kind of emotional, man, like my That's mother, awesome. you know, my mom relying on me, you know, with her mental illness, like, dude, when I would even leave town for a weekend, she'd get all upset and, you know, all anxious and, and, you know, have her issues and everything. I said, mom, listen, it's a jungle. I'm not a fucking survivalist. I'm, I'm only going to go for like two weeks. You know, like I, I, I just want to experience it. My, I knew that the show or the, the jungle, I knew that jungle experience was going to start like around October 1st. They told us like, okay, we're probably going to drop you around October 1st. So I was like, all right, my birthday's October 15th. I'm going to fucking just live on a jungle for two weeks, which is insane to, for me to even comprehend. And, and I'll, and I'll, I'll come home because I'm an athlete. I'm not going to emaciate my body. I'm not going to destroy myself. You know, like I'm not going to come home with an illness or, you know, like fucking malaria. Like I got family to take care of. I'm just going to go see what it's all about and experience all this. And I'm going to come home. And I tell my mom that actually, I'm like, mom, listen, I'm just going to go see what it's all about, you know, and, and, and uh, I'm going to probably back out after two weeks. And my mom's like tearing up. She shakes her head and she goes, and it makes me emotional, dude, because people saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. You know, like my mom shakes her head and she goes, no, no, you're, you're going to probably make it to the end. And I'll just have to, I'll just have to deal with, with you being gone. I'll just have to deal with it. And I, and I'm even shaking my head like, no, I'm not going to make it, you know? And, and then, so dude, I, I travel all the way to Indonesia and when you know every detail of how fucking crazy this journey was, man, like ABC tried to create something so unique and so special. The guy who created the show created a loan on History Channel. They made it so real, man. Like when I traveled to Indonesia, somebody from ABC showed up to my house. I had to relinquish my passport weeks in advance so that I couldn't see where I was going. I couldn't see my visa of how long I might be there. They truly tried to create the real life version of that old TV show lost like a plane crash or a shipwreck happens. You wash up on shore. What are you going to do? But at the same time, it's going to flash back to your life at home and tell who you are. It's going to tell your story of why you are the way you are. And it's going to document human change. That was the whole purpose of this TV show Hmm. was let's put people in an insane environment, starvation, jungle, and let's see how they change. It was a true fucking social experiment. It wasn't a game. There was no competition. There was no end game. It was, it was truly let's, sorry, you still there? Yeah. Yeah. You're good. Oh, it it was truly let's, uh, let's see what we can, you know, get out of these people and document that, you know, and that's pretty dark in itself even, right? It was was a little bit of hunger games meets Lord of the flies is kind of what it ended up being, (laughs) man. You know? So, so, so anyways, yeah, I get out there. This guy from from ABC shows up at my doorstep. He goes, hey, I'm Robbie. I'm here to escort you to Indonesia. And I was just like, holy shit, you know? So it was like three-day trip to get to this super remote part of the world. And then it was like black bag over your head type of shit. You, weren't, you didn't know any other cast members. You didn't know who else was there. You didn't even – dude, you didn't know anything. Like, like it was – I called times and was like, dude, is this fucking legit, bro? Like, is this normal? And my attorney, who's like a, 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 a well-known motorsports attorney, he's done stuff. Like, he, he literally told me, he's a really funny dude. Like, he's kind of a Hollywood guy. He does motorsports. He did one of the very first, like, survivor contracts. And it, my contract was, like, 40 pages long of, like, how intense it was going to be. And he literally says this. He goes, you better buckle the fuck up, Jaskel. You signed up for this, man. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> Here we go, man. Like, cause he saw stuff in the contract that I didn't even read. He was like, oh yeah, but oh yeah, buddy, buckle up, buckle up, Jaskel. So, 
So we get to Indonesia, man. They put us in this like little fucking hotel room. We get sequestered. We get sequestered to our hotel rooms for four days. Locked. You weren't allowed to leave your hotel room because you weren't allowed to go roam around. They didn't want you to run into other cast members. They would come get you one hour a day like a fucking dog and walk you so you could go get a little bit of outside air. Dude, I mean, it's and this is all screwing with your mind also, right? Then before they drop us, they put us on these dive boats one at a time. So, you did, again, you didn't know who the other people were. And then we boat four hours out into the middle of the fucking ocean. Dude, you're freaking out. You're like, what? In every moment, I'm like, what the fuck did I sign up for, man? What am I about to do? The day before we got dropped, they took you one at a time, sat you in front of ABC production, and it was the vice president of ABC was there all the way in Indonesia, the president of legal department, the attorney, the creator of the show, there was two Navy SEAL medics. That was it. Those were our medical guys. We had two Navy SEAL medics, and we had a couple of New Zealand Special Forces because we were close to New Zealand. The New Zealand Special Forces guys were in charge of security and, like, safety to make sure, like, you know, like, the gate – because the game board was, like, 17 miles long, okay? So there was 12, 12 cast members. We were spread across five different islands over fucking 17 miles. So again, people think it's like Survivor. They, they purposely did it knowing that people would never meet, right? Like it was, it was, some people might, some people were definitely never going to meet because we were spread too far apart, you know? And um, one of the times before it started, the New Zealand Special Forces was, were telling us, and he literally says this He goes, Listen, you're not going to, you're only going to be filmed about six hours a day. There's not going to be a fucking camera crew with you all the time. They're not. They were living on boats miles away from where you might be sitting in the jungle, dude. It wasn't fucking naked and afraid where there's like a, a you know a security tent and you just yell for help if something happens. They told you like, guys, this is as real as it gets. Okay, you are going to be in the jungle every night alone. You are not allowed to go a hundred yards outside of your camp at night for this reason. Because if something happens to you, we have to recover your body the next morning, and we don't want you going too far away. And when he said that to me, recover your body, I like sat my head back and was like, can I call my attorney again really fast? Like, I just have a few <laughs> questions. Um, I didn't realize what I'd gotten into, man. Like, this, I was like, fuck, this is not a joke. You know, this is not, you know, and, and again, people think they know. They're like, oh, yeah, well, you have a camera crew. You're not really alone. It's like, fuck, man, you don't realize what it was like out there. So day one, the, the producer takes me out of my little cabin on the boat secretly. I don't know anybody else. He puts me on a dinghy boat, and they boat me away from the big boat to my area, which was my designated drop area, which was actually kind of like this abandoned structure in the middle of the ocean. Um, so anyways, they chose – in a band, it, it, like I said, it was such a long, complicated story to know everything. But what they did, ABC chose – for six months, they went hunting to try to find the right location. It was a 15-year abandoned uh, fishing area. So it, so it was like there was a, abandoned pearl farms and like fishing areas on these islands. It, dude, it, 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 like out of a movie, something you wouldn't even realize that I didn't even know these things existed. So my shelter for eight days that I lived alone was an abandoned guard tower in the middle of the water about 30 yards from shore. So we boat up to it. We're about a half a mile away, and the producer looks at me and goes, okay, man, it starts now. Um, this is it. Get out of the boat. And I'm literally like, uh, 
that's about a half a mile swim. And he looks at me knowing that I'm like a triathlete and I know distance and stuff. He looks at me and he goes, that's exactly what it is. You'll be fine. And I, and I asked if we can get closer. So the, the show started with me on a little boat. There was a drone pilot to fly a drone. They kicked me out of a fucking boat and I swam a half a mile to shore. And that's and dude. I, and then it's just, you don't know what to, and then you're just trying to survive. And, um, so I see, yeah, dude. So I swim to shore. I get onto this little fucking rickety tetanus tower thing, and and I'm and I and I start taking inventory. So the way ABC explained it to us is like, listen, you're gonna be stranded amongst amongst deserted islands that have scattered resources. So some shit was out there, dude. There was like fucking fishing line and a bit like fucking old machetes that they didn't that were left. You know, there was shit that ABC found amongst the trash and they strategically placed it on the game board, right? And then there was some resources. Like when I got to my resource, I had two cans of sardines. I had like a bottle of, of, of fucking scotch that was like in this messed up bottle. I found like a little bag of tea. I found a couple of uh, uh, fireproof matches. Like that's literally it. Like something you would find abandoned, right? And you were allowed to pack a bag like you're going on an island vacation, okay? Mm. You could pack a little carry-on bag, but no survival items. It could be clothing, maybe a couple of fucking protein bars, maybe some obscure survival items, but it had to be small, TSA approved. But there was no guarantee that you would get your bag because <laughs> it's like a plane crash. So I packed a really fucking smart bag. It looked like I packed a closet full of REI stuff, and, um, and I never got my bag, of course. Some, somebody else did. So I got some shitty backpack that had like a couple of dirty clothes in it and like a toothbrush and toothpaste and stuff. And, um, and that was it. And to, to be fully transparent, you know, ABC didn't want to give us water or anything, but production said, you can't do that. They'll die in five days. So for the first couple of days, uh, production gave you like a Nalgene bottle, like smaller than a liter of water. And they even told you like, listen, this is not enough to survive. It's just enough to help keep you alive. So you can go look for other resources where you get settled in. So literally they gave you a little bit of water to stay alive, but then they started taking it away after a few days. And then, and then you literally only got one bottle of water per day to ration. And you only got it when the production guy, the, like the morning, they, they would show up about nine in the morning. When I say production, it was one fucking camera guy. One camera guy would show up with one helper and that was, and they would come with like buffs covering their faces. So you didn't have like a human interaction. You, if you try to talk to him, he'd be like, don't fucking talk to me. You know, like you weren't allowed to communicate with them. Um, and you were just cruising around trying to survive, dude. And it would, but this is where it gets emotional where the story, where the, the show, I didn't even realize what it was going to be. So they film your life at home for six weeks. They would sit you down and do interviews with you and they would extract really emotional shit out of your life to tell your life story. And one of the things was like when I was doing my interviews at home, my producer was like, so tell us how you feel about your father living on borrowed time since his heart attack. Oh, fuck. And how do you feel being that? How do you dude, They would say, how do you feel being a failed race car driver, not taking care of your family the way you wanted? And you're just like, what'd you fucking say? Like they would ask you these really fucking emotionally twisted questions to get shit out of you. And then guess what? So now you're in the jungle. You're in the jungle like two months after they filmed you at home. Now you're starving in a jungle. You're struggling. And now they ask you those same questions. But now that you're struggling in a jungle and and now you start to see the human transformation. So do you, now do you get an understanding of what the show was about, sure. right? Like so now 
Now they're asking the same questions that you said about yourself, things that you, but now they're fucking throwing it back at you. Day five, day 10, day 15, day 25, day fucking 30, day 35. And how, what are you, how do you look back on your life now? What do you think about yourself now? You know, like, and it was a, it was like, it was like a 42 day emotional starvation therapy camp. Kind of like (laughs) something like Auschwitz, but you weren't trying to be killed. Technically, you know, it was dark, bro. It was fucking intense. man. It had to be. Well, I, it was intense. I, I also love the fact that they tossed you right uh, almost on the border of Papua New Guinea, and there's still fucking cannibals there, for Christ's sake. There's still cannibals, dude. There's still – dude, we were literally like a couple-hour car ride away from where they still like burn people for thinking they're witches and shit like that, dude. We were in a crazy part of the world. Maybe that, maybe they had to choose that type of shit because that's that, that was the only type of area that would let us do some twisted shit like this. you know? Like So, so I was alone for eight days. I hiked and swam to find two other dudes – who ended up not being very cool. They were kind of like there for the game. They were eight days in. They found they had resources. They found some food and they brought me in, but they didn't want me there. Mm. They didn't want to feed another stomach, you know, and and so I went through this in, insane emotional journey. And and dude, what happened what ended up happening was I made it day 15. And I was like, well, I don't want to fucking give up now. I came this far, you know, it dude, imagine it's literally no different than when you draw that line in the sand and you're like, this is my limit. I'm not going any, this is my fucking line. But when you're suffering that bad, you don't realize now you, you look back at the end of the day and you're like, oh shit, I crossed that line. (laughs) Okay. Well, fuck, fuck it. Now this is my line. And then you see the sunrise and you're like, okay, okay, no, this is my line. I'm only, I'm only going to go to sunset. Now you fucking make it to sunset. And you're, so that's how it kind of went. You know, you just, and about day 25 is when I was starting to starve. Gen, so, so it was funny how later on we found out, right? So we were complaining. We're like, we're fucking starving. We're starving. And meanwhile, the Navy SEAL medics who are hearing the, the video, they're hearing the dailies, you know, they're watching some of the videos at, at, and they're like, oh, these fucking guys are starving. They're just really, really, really hungry. And so, but it wasn't, it was about day 25 that, the, the Navy SEAL medics were like, okay, these guys are actually starving now. So they, they, so now I entered starvation about day 25. Um, kind of an emotional story, dark story. Day, day 30, I started peeing blood. I was having, I was having, so I had rhabdo about day 30, okay? And it okay. wasn't a joke. Right. So I, I, I asked a production guy who was like one of the camera guys one day. I go, hey man, can I see a, a medic? Again, this wasn't a competition. They didn't want you to die. They didn't want you to go. Like they would, dude. If you got sick, they'd fucking try to treat you so you could stay and tell your story. You know, so so you weren't allowed to like get help and. But but again, it wasn't a game. Like if you cut yourself, you could call a medic and they'd fucking sew you up, take care of you, so you can continue your journey. You know, so um, you know. But if you know if you were down for the count, okay, your journey's over. You're done. You know, so. So I asked to see a Navy SEAL medic, uh, or asked to see the medic. The, the medic comes out. And he's like, "What's going on, Jaskell?" And I was like, "Ah, oh, man, I'm I'm peeing brown." And he was like, "Oh shit, dude. Oh man." He goes, "Oh, you're there, man. You're there." And and I literally, I'm like, "Where? What are you talking? Where am I? What are you talking about?" <laughs> he's like, "Dude, you're 
you're in start and he starts telling me what's going on with my body. Right. He tells me, Oh, it's, you know, you're having kidney failure essentially and this and that. And I, I start crying, dude. And a funny thing about living in a jungle, right? There's no fucking mirrors, dude. There, I never, I didn't see how bad I, if I could have seen myself, I might've quit earlier and been like, fuck this. You know, I don't want to, I'm not going to kill myself. You know, I didn't realize how bad I looked on day 30. I didn't realize that I looked like I was in a camp. You well, you know, know what's, like, you know, what's funny is you posted a picture, uh, just not that long ago as a memory to the whole event. And, and what struck me the most in the photo was not how skinny you are and how clearly you long you've been at it, but was the expression on your face was kind of like, Jesus Christ, what have I yeah. done? <laughs> Dude, so cool, man. It's so fucking cool you say that because a lot of people don't realize it. So I'll, let me tell that part of why that look on my face. That was re- that was after I got rescued. It was like almost 12 hours after I'd been rescued. But that photo was so fucking genuine. It was the first time we were in these, we were in these like huts, you know, even though we got rescued, they took us to like this, like this, like dive resort to recover. We had to work with the doctors for like a week. We weren't allowed to go back home to civilization yet for a week. We had to like debrief even the fucking psych doctors like, yeah, you can't put these guys back in a city, back in a hotel. (laughs) Like they, these guys just fucking starved in a jungle for God's sakes. So we actually had to go to like this very remote Island that literally only that not like a resort, like there was huts, not hotels, you know? And, And, but, but I saw myself in a mirror for the first time in 42 days and I had my uh, a phone. We it had no service. You weren't allowed to use it, but you could have it. You know, you could have it. So, so there was no service, anyways. But that photo was so genuine. I was in my little hut. I looked in the mirror for the first time, and I literally went like this. I went. I was touching my bones that were, and I literally was like, and I said, I go, oh my god, oh my. I just kept saying, oh my god, what have I done? You know, I'm like touching my bones, touching my body, and I turn and I and my one of the other guys that survived. 12 started, only five of us made it. And, and I, and I say, Hey, Rich, I yell at one of the guys in my hut, in the hut next to me. He goes, yeah, bud. I go, will you please come over here? And he just, you know, he rushes over into my room really quick. He goes, what, what's up, man? And he, and I'm standing in the little outdoor, it's an outdoor bathroom, like in this hut, I'm standing at the doorway with that look on my face. And I remember his shoulders dropped and he looked at me and I'll never forget. He looked at me and and I never, I didn't say one fucking word. He looked at me and he goes, crazy huh man and i went yeah can you take a photo for me and i handed my phone and that was the look dude yeah i literally was like just you know i'll never forget that 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 he read my face that he didn't even know what i wanted he just came over to my room and i'm standing in the doorway with that that look on my face that long stare and he went crazy huh yeah yeah well, I'll tell you what, man, it, it came through as clear as a bell for me. And maybe that's the, the skydiver psychologist in me. After all the years of doing tandems, you learn to read people's expressions pretty quickly. But that's exactly yeah. what I saw in that picture was you just going, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't an, uh, uh, you know, it, it was literally a, that's what I just went through. <laughs> yeah. And man, you know, and there's, dude, I could talk for about 40 minutes to tell you the transformation that I went through and what the journey meant to me and what it was like and all the fucking things that happened and how real it was. Dude, production even stepped in on day 32 to communicate to us, to be like, whoa, because we were like, a few of us were going to kill each other because we were fucking starving. Production had to step in because like it was getting, it was getting, oh shit, we might need to step in. They stepped in and I'm very honest, man. Like, so it was as real as it gets on fucking day 32 they gave us a little bit of food. 
gave us a little bit of food because, and I'm, dude, I probably, probably get sued for this, right? Like fucking non-disclosures, but I don't give a fuck. Nobody cares now. It's over. Show's, show's been gone for three years. Um, but they stepped in because it was it like per the contract, okay, of ABC, they were allowed to feed the cast one time. Once. Wow. That's it. Like, because it was a, re- that's, but that's what I try to tell people. I'm like, this was fucking real. Yeah. They weren't feeding us. They weren't keeping us alive. They weren't communicating with you. Like we were fucking losing our shit and the producers would be like, then quit, go home. Like, you know, it was real as it gets without letting you die. And some of us were going to die. So they were like, okay, we don't. And oh, here's the other thing. You didn't know when the end day was. <laughs> you didn't know. you. So not only did you not know how many human beings were out there, you didn't know when the show was going to end, but they did. So again, because of laws and rules, the end day was chosen to be 41 days or 42 days, right? That was it. That was the end day. But we didn't know that. The show could only end early if nobody – so check it out. If one person was alive, they can't end the show. So uh, there, was a, there was a potentiality that nobody would finish. There was a fucking chance. ABC was taking a chance that nobody could end up making it to rescue day. Sure. To this really emotional where they rescued us with fucking boats and helicopters and our minds are like, oh my God, it's over. We're, I mean, that's how real it was, dude. We're fucking, there's five of us together in the end and we all, and it's a very emotional story and it's fucking unbelievable how we all ended up together in the end and it's not scripted. It, people would think it is, but that's how real, that's how raw it was, dude. When the whole show was over, the producer said this, the only problem will be convincing people it was real because that's how divine that's how divine it was. Do we all the fucking only five surviving people all ended up together, surviving together at the end. When we got rescued, we heard helicopter and we were like, oh, my God. And we're crying. We're like, is it fucking over? Is Are they just are they playing with us? You know, because you're so twisted in the head. dude. You've been starving for days. So, yeah, I mean, it was. It was such an insane experience that people would never fully understand, you know, like, and, and I, like I said, I could explain for an hour more of like how, it, you know, how, what it went, what we all went through, what I went through, what my journey was all about and everything. And sure. And, yeah, dude, it was it was fucking nuts, man. Well, the, I mean, especially uh, in a culture that was raised on, you know, the TV show Survivor, where y'all know it's bullshit and it's this game to vote this person off or that person off. Then when you see somebody that's actually going through something real, you're probably not going to believe it. You know, I mean, right. uh, I, I saw a comedian that once did a joke about the show Survivor saying they have this show where a bunch of, you know, privileged people go and pretend to survive in places where people actually live, you know, and that was right. the big fucking joke. But this was not that so it's it, i think they're we probably were, right you know people would have a difficult time swallowing it because of the the culture of bullshit we've been fed for so long yeah and i went through this such an emotional transformation you know like i learned so much about myself i mean i was alone you and i learned about a why versus a how which was written in a book about a fucking Auschwitz, you know holocaust survivor mm. for god's sakes you know and i learned about how you have to have a why bigger than a how that you can't like, – if you try to sit there and go, how am I going to survive? How am I going to hunt? How am I going to find food? You were going to die. Mm. But if you had a why and – I, and I was able to find a why. I mean I had no business surviving out there, but I didn't – I wasn't going to fucking give up. And I had a why. My why was to fucking finish. Mm. I have been – it's been driven into my head that it doesn't fucking matter where you finish. I don't care if your shit's falling apart. I don't care if you're falling apart. You fucking cross the finish line. Yeah, man. I don't care if you have to – Drag the car, drag the bike, drag yourself. You finish the race. So to me, it was very emotional because it was like 
dude, I was fucking crying on day 31, looking at this Navy SEAL medic who said, Hey man, I got to take you out of here. I got to get you to a hospital. We're going to pull you for malnutrition. And I fucking fought him and said, I am not, not leaving. I'm not going home to my care about me fit. They don't care whether I win or lose. I just can't go home to them like this. Sure. I can't go home to them broken, half dead and say, I didn't finish. Yeah. I can't do that. I, you have to let me finish. Dude, this guy was emotional. This Navy SEAL medic, he was like, Matt, we know who you are, man. We know your story. I know you're not going to let me take you out of here unless you're on a stretcher. But you you got you got one day, man. He goes, he literally he gave me two days. He said, you got two days. I don't care if you got to steal the food from these guys. I don't care what you do, but you you got two days. And I thought he was giving me two days until he pulled me off the show. Puts his fucking hand on my sh- shoulder and goes, you got two days to live, bro. Hmm. He goes, in two more days, you're in kidney failure. And, and he goes, I'm not going to let you die. He goes, but I'll have to bring you back to life in a hospital. And that was the most of like, <laughs> I just remember being like stone cold, just wow. I'm in a jungle on a TV show. And I just had a fucking medic tell me that I've brought myself within two days of death. Yeah. You know, like what the fuck am I doing right now? You know, like <laughs> all I, I want to know is have you started the fucking first draft of the book yet? Cause no, I thank you. I've been asked that many times. Man. Dude, like, I, you know, I've, I mean, I've met a lot of people with some crazy stories, but I mean, even I wrote a fucking book and it's just about dropping my pants in public for Christ's sakes. You've, <laughs> you've got a fucking book in you, man. I, you really need to put that out there. <laughs> I mean, let me, let me share this. Uh, I came home with a lot of guilt after that trip. Okay. Something I, I have a lot of guilt of, and it might be stupid or not, it's personal. We don't have to talk about this, but I have a lot of guilt that I never served in the military. I wanted to. My parents wouldn't let me kind of. They, I fought. I said, I want to go in the military because I was bitter about racing. It was after I lost my Red Bull ride. I got fucking fired from Red Bull. My gra- Both my grandfathers served in the military. I love the military. I fucking want to do some badass shit. I want to serve. I, I want to do something bigger than myself. Like I wanted to quit racing and go in the military, and my parents fought me. They were like, you're not fucking doing that to us. Mm-hmm. We devoted our money and our time into your career. You're going to see it through. You're not giving it up to go into the military. And that was a big fight. You know, like I wanted to go serve. I was, I was fucking pissed off at racing. I got screwed over. I was bitter. I was disenchanted, all that bullshit. And I, and, and my, my parents said, we'll disown you. Like they were like, that's noble of you, but fuck you. You're not doing it. Sure. And, uh, and, and, um, so I, so I didn't serve. I didn't go in the military. So th- the reason I mentioned that is I came home and I was, um, I had PTSD for sure. We all, a lot of us did from being in the jungle and everything. And I remember a very good military friend of mine called me a Marine and, uh, and we're talking on the phone and, and he respects me a lot. He's a great guy. Fucking and, and he served 11 years in the Marines and, and we're on the phone talk. He's a skydiver. He's also a skydiver and he calls me and he goes, and we talk, we talk a lot. And this was, you know, about two weeks of me being home and still recovering. And he goes, and he says this and he goes, so all the, you know, all the, all the small talk aside, he goes, so, Hey man, How's your PTSD? <laughs> and I go, what do you fucking talk? I don't fucking have PTSD, dude. What are you talking about? I don't have any PTSD. And he goes, I didn't want to. I I felt like what I did wasn't. I, I went on a fucking show. It wasn't noble. I, I don't have the. I don't have the right to have PTSD. You know, like, and and he gets pissed off, and he fucking and he gets sharp with me, and he goes, Listen, man, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you one more time, and you better not fucking lie to me. <laughs> he goes, I saw your face and what you looked like after you came home. He goes, whether you know it or not, dude, what you did was noble for yourself and for your family to make that commitment and see it through. He goes, so now I'm going to ask you one more time, and I don't want you to lie to me. 
And by, before he can finish, dude, I'm fucking <laughs> fucking tears. And he goes, how's your PTSD? And I'm already crying. And, and, and we have a, an hour long conversation of everything I'm going through. Sure. Of, of all, you know, everything about the experience and what it was like and, and all the different things and all the emotions. And so we talk about it for an hour. And it was amazing. You know, he let me know. He's like, it's not reserved for service members. You know, it's like what you did was so, what you did was special for you and your family and everything. And, uh, and he, you know, you need to be grateful and, 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 give, and be proud of what you did, you know. And something that, that nobody would ever understand this guy, but there was a mentor in my life. And sadly, he died two years ago. He was a Purple Heart recipient in Vietnam. Uh, he was potentially going to be one of the greatest race car drivers ever. And he got drafted into Vietnam. Mm. Um, I met him in 1998 and he was an old, older man by then already, but he was, uh, bipolar, alcoholic, drug abuser. You know, he was fucked up from, fucked up from Vietnam. Um, and, uh, you know, saw, saw action, got shot, purple heart, came home. Uh, and he, uh, when he came home, he came home to his uh, father who had married his girlfriend, uh, you know, fucking crazy life story. Right. But he was a fucking genius. He was literally borderline genius IQ and stuff like that. And he was one of my very first mentors in racing ever. Uh, he, he helped me win one of my very first national championships. He was a, a famous man in karting. He's in the kart racing hall of fame. Like he developed a lot of stuff. He was, he was a very famous man in racing. He, he mentored a lot of famous drivers and he worked with me. And, um, through the years, he struggled a lot with, with mental illness and stuff like that, you know, well into his seventies and stuff like that and lived here in Vegas. My father and I helped him throughout the years. And, and, um, I, I was so fucking grateful that he, that he was a part of my life and he got to see the show and he, uh, and something I'll never fucking forget, dude. It was so, it was so fucking proud hearing from this guy that I had so much respect for on so many different levels of life, you know? And, and I was so lucky that he, that I still got to, he came to my house for Christmas after I had survived in the jungle and stuff like that. He was, you know, he was a fucking bat. This guy was all the way until he died was like fucking sharper than you could ever hope to be like super intelligent, which haunted him, you know, part of his mental issues and stuff like that. But he looked at me after the show, we go to, we go to breakfast. He was like, he goes, you had the long stare, man. You had, you, you saw some shit. Out. That was like fucking guys I seen in Nam, but you just, he goes, you just weren't shot at, but you went through some shit out there. But it was so fucking amazing for him. This, this purple heart fucking Vietnam vet to acknowledge that I looked like I, the same person. He goes, you went through some shit. Yeah, you just didn't get shot at. And he said, be fucking proud of what you did out there. Oh, yeah. And, and, it, and that was so fucking amazing. You know? Well, again, like, that, was... that, that, that picture said a thousand words. The, the instant I saw that picture, I'm like, oh, this is a story I got to hear. That's cool. <laughs> I'm like, I got to hear this story because I can see it in this guy's face. Matt's been through some shit right there. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think for, the, for like him, who's, you know, he's ex-military racing, it was about not fucking giving up. Sure. It was about you, you do not give up no matter what. You fucking see it through. I don't care if you're going to die. You make it to the end, yeah, you know, man. and that's, and, and the journey for me was about finishing. And, and something I learned about myself, man, is I wasn't proud of myself before that journey. I had devoted my entire life to needing other people to be proud of me. I had always devoted my entire life to having to win and, and make my sponsors proud to get to the next race and, and, you know, asking people, you're proud of me, right? I was never fucking proud of myself mm. ever. It was always, and, and, and that was hard and that affected relationships of mine, you know, like, you know, and, and I, and those are, and that's what I'm talking about. The things I went through, you sit in a fucking jungle alone in the dark, completely alone, alone, alone. You're cut off from the world. You have no food. You have no cell phone. You have no family, no friends. You are literally 
alone in your own head, you start to learn a lot about yourself. Oh, you start yeah. to, and it can be a dark place to be. Some people quit out there because they couldn't handle being inside their own heads every night. You sure. know, and you're, you're literally deciphering every aspect of your life because you can't avoid, it was like, it was like this is the best way I can explain it. You just sure. can't avoid your own thoughts and your own, and you're, you're just dissecting everything about your life. And what I learned was I wasn't proud of myself and I always needed other people to be proud of me. And, and, uh, and it wasn't until going through that experience that I was, I was proud of myself, sure, you know, sure. uh, uh, not just, not just in that moment, but proud of my life and, and the things that I've done and things like that, you know? Well, and sometimes it takes that perspective to look backwards, you know, and, and go, okay, this is, wow, look what I've actually achieved, but you have to step away from and get back away from all that shit to actually examine it and take it for what it's really worth. Now, yeah. how do people can is this show still available? Can people still see this it show? It is. What's cool, man, is people still reach out. So it was on it was ABC, it was on Hulu. I don't I I don't watch it uh, cuz it's hard for me to honestly to watch it cuz it you know, some you got to remember and and for anybody that's going to go look up the show, it's called Castaways. It's on you can find it on YouTube still. I think it's on a few different websites that you could you can download all the episodes. It was 10 episodes. Keep in mind, 10 episodes. It was only about 8 hours worth of television. I was in a fucking jungle for 42 days. Oh, I'm so, going to pull that shit up. I want to see it. <laughs> right. I mean, it's a good show, but man, you only see, and this was a production telling us this, you see 2% of all footage shot. Sure. So they filmed us at home for six weeks. So I was a little bit disappointed in the show in the sense that, in the show, in the experience was the, I wish I could do it again. I felt guilty that I wish other people could experience it. Um, but the show came up a little bit short because there wasn't enough time to tell. Like it, it missed a little bit of my life story. It doesn't dive into like my father's heart attack and my mother's life. And, you know, it doesn't it doesn't really tell. But it but it it does get across the, the bigger picture of humanity and sure. what the show was about. Um, but so, you know, anybody that watches it, keep an keep an open mind. It's a little bit boring in the beginning. So it's not a reality show. It's a fucking it's a social experiment that you're watching. The show doesn't start picking up until like episode five, six, seven, when people start to suffer and struggle you know um but yeah you can still find castaways abc it'll pop up you'll see like youtube and things like that and, and you can download it and find awesome. it. awesome awesome now how do people track down um you driving stuff uh you skydiving stuff how do they just find out what the hell matt jaskell's up to yeah, man. Just like everybody, you know, like we, you know, the social, you know, for better or for worse, I love social media, but yeah, I'm on, I'm on Instagram, uh, Matt Jaskell. So it's easy to find me as a type in the name Matt Jaskell, Facebook. And I, and I, I'm a, I like to consider myself a very transparent person, you know, like I, even though I, I show a lot of good stuff, I still share story. I do video journals to this day because of the jungle. Like, you know, I, every now and then I'll get on and talk about life and, and, and try to keep it real, you know, like, you know, I show, I share all the fun skydiving travel and all these cool experiences. Like when I got to meet, I met you in the middle East and I went to the Maldives and, you know, like, I, but people don't realize the struggle that goes on at home and the, and the things that you go through. So I try to share that. So yeah, man, like, so, you know, Facebook, Instagram, I'm there and I, I am still currently trying to race, you know, so my, my full-time job is, uh, is, you know, help helping run the family business the last five years, but I just sold my dad's business after, after five years. And it's and, and so now I'm transitioning into kind of getting my life back to doing things I want to do. So I'm going back to race coaching, a little bit of racing. I'm hoping to be back in a race car full time next year since fucking COVID shut it all down. And so I still do a lot of driver coaching. I mentor and coach young go-kart drivers, older drivers that have little race teams. I skydive, you know, part time as a little bit of side work. And, 
you know, so a few different things, right? But, but, but definitely trying to focus back on, on doing some motorsport stuff in the next year or two. Awesome. Well, you need to sit down and uh, take some time with a laptop and fucking Microsoft Word and start pecking at them keys, man, because <laughs> <laughs> you got more than a few stories to tell. It's cool. Thank you, dude. Like I, when I was, dude, even a few years ago before the TV show, people were like, dude, you gotta, you gotta write a book and tell your story about like formula one and, you know, trying to be a race car driver and all these struggles. And then after, and I always said, fuck that. Nobody wants to hear my story. Nobody gives a shit. It's I have bullshit. And then as soon as I came out of the jungle, some of those same people go, well, now, now you probably want to do a book. It's like, okay, now maybe people would read it. All yeah, right, man. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, Matt, I'll tell you what, man, I cannot fucking thank you enough for taking the time to sit down and share these insane stories with me. <laughs> They dude, were... hey, I, let me share this really fast, dude. I hope, I mean, you fucking let me sit here and, and I get to talk, which I do a lot anyways. I talk a lot. People know that about me. And you let me share my story. And um, But I hope you know how fucking grateful I am, dude. Like, I, I think you're a badass. I know who you are. <clears throat> Some of my really dear friends love you. I don't know you that well. I only got to meet you last year, which is crazy, right? Yeah. And when I, uh, this year, no, this year. It was yeah. fucking February that I met you and I brought my dad on the trip, you know, it was like a father son trip. And so meeting you was an honor because I knew who you were. And then when you asked me to be on the podcast, I know of your podcast, I truly was honored. I was like, Oh fuck, that is so cool, man. So, uh, so truly thank you from the bottom of my heart. Oh, absolutely, man. It's, it's all about talking to fucking cool people. You know, at the end of the day, it's a big bonfire chat and I want to hear the coolest stories and it doesn't even have to be about skydiving. It's about skydivers and what they do throughout the rest of their lives as well. So seriously, Thank you very much for sharing the story. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, Matt. You take care, man. Blue skies. Dude, I hope to blue skies, man. I hope to see you soon, man. All right. Another episode of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void in the Can, brought to you as always by the greatest magazine in the known universe. That's right, blueskiesmagazine.com. Also brought to you by pussfoot.com. That's the extreme sports collective. Check it out. Type it in, pussfoot.com. Summit Parachute Systems. Summit Parachute Systems is run by the one and only Jarrett Martin, who's not only building amazing, badass pilot rigs, but he's giving incredible rigging courses as well. So head to summitparachutesystems.com to check it out. As for me, I am the fucking pilot. You find me at thefuckingpilot.net, where you can get copies of both the books that I've written, and both digital and print, and of course, links to this and all the other podcasts. Thanks again for joining. We'll see you next time.